Well, good afternoon. Open your Bibles with me in 1 Peter chapter 5. We have now entered into the final chapter of 1 Peter. And I'll read the text, and then we'll, we'll jump right into it. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. In this uh, section of scripture, we have now entered into 1 Peter chapter 5, the final chapter of 1 Peter. And I have been granted in God's goodness two weeks to cover the entirety of chapter 5. And just the timing of things. And, and I did want to finish chapter 5 of 1 Peter. And so we're going to get this done in two sermons. And if any of you remember all the way back, uh, I preached a sermon on 1 Peter 1.1. And I preached a sermon on 1 Peter 1.2. And so it's obviously going to be a little bit of, of a quicker pace. But I think this does cohere together quite nicely, this section. Because what Peter's doing in this passage that we just read here today is he's addressing us as a congregation, and he's addressing two different sections of the congregation. He's addressing first the leaders of the congregation, and then he's addressing the congregation itself. And he uses this analogy of shepherding. We like the analogy of shepherding. One of your probably favorite psalms, I imagine, Psalm 23, isn't it? The Lord is my shepherd. And we think of how glorious it is that Jesus is a great shepherd, but we sometimes miss out on what it means that we're a sheep. Now, I can't imagine too many people are shepherds in this congregation, but if you go talk to a shepherd and you ask this question, I wonder if you know the answer that he would give. Are sheep smart? <laughs> There's something about sheep that you just don't basically sheep, see sheep living out in the wild all by themselves. In fact, I, I saw a picture of sheep that had escaped from its own fold and had lived for a few years by itself, and it did not look good. Let me simply put it that way. I saw another video of a sheep, and I probably should have brought it because you would have enjoyed watching it. But the sheep was, uh, was, uh, was bounding along, and it fell into this crevice. And uh, somebody worked tirelessly to save the sheep from the crevice, pulling and yanking. And finally, with great excitement in this video, the sheep is pulled free and set on the side. And you can see the guy just relaxing. And then what does the sheep immediately do? Jump right back into the crevice. And I think when the scripture portrays us to some degree, what it's indicating about us being sheep needing shepherd is that there is a sense in which fallen humanity needs the guidance of one wiser than them. 
And it is among us that we need a chief shepherd, and that chief shepherd is certainly the Lord Jesus Christ. He's talked about in this passage. But also the Lord calls us to call from amongst ourselves, call from among the sheep, one who would stand at the head to be a shepherd. And so this morning, or this afternoon, we're going to have an opportunity to consider together what it means to call a shepherd, or to call a shepherd, a pastor. And obviously this church is in the situation in which you're about to call a shepherd. This is a Baptist assembly, and at least in the way in which the uh, governing uh, rules go, and, and that means it's congregational. You will be choosing, selecting, as the elders bring forward uh, particular men to be considered for this role, you'll be choosing whether the man that's being presented is the sort of man that you would want to be in this position. And accordingly, reading through this passage will help us to understand what a pastor should do. So even though the first couple of verses of this passage really only pertain to the elders of the congregation, and there are some here, it also is something that we need to keep our ears open for, because as you are selecting someone to be the chief elder of this congregation, then you need to be looking for someone with the qualifications that this passage suggests. Now, it doesn't just talk about the pastor, the elder. It also talks to those who are congregants. And I think that there's a similarity in the approach that's given to both. So let's begin thinking through what a good shepherd would look like. So I am excited in the coming months to be able to see what God does among this congregation and bring to you a good shepherd. What does a good shepherd look like? I think there are a number of, uh, of elements that make a good shepherd. The first is that a good shepherd is humble. Humble. He's not a prideful person. Of course, a good Christian is a humble person. But a shepherd, it is very important that you find someone who does not think too highly of himself, but rather will look at himself in the light of Scripture itself. Now, why do I say a good shepherd is humble? Well, you'll notice at 5.1, Peter says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Now, the Apostle Peter, this is the first time in the entire letter that Peter actually addresses himself in the whole book. He hasn't drawn attention to himself. He could have done so. Remember back when he's talking about us being like stones? Jesus is the cornerstone. But what did Jesus say to Peter? Peter, you are this rock. And I think Peter could have pridefully said, uh, you know, Jesus is a cornerstone, by the way, I'm kind of a rock, uh, upon which the church is, uh, you know, depending on your interpretation of that, but I still think he, he could have said something about his role in that, but he chooses not to. And even here, he doesn't come to the congregation and say, hey, listen, everybody needs to listen to me because here I am. Now, he does say he's an apostle, and, and so there is some of that, but... Notice when, when he talks to the congregation of the, of, of the saints, he says, I'm exhorting the elders, so I'm talking specifically to the elders, and notice what he does, is he says, I'm a fellow elder with you. I have linked arms with you in order to accomplish the task of leading the people of God. You see, Peter's not a prideful person. He's not saying, hey, listen up. Uh, you know, I'm the guy that Jesus put in this position. You need to then listen to me. He says, no, guys, as we go along, 
accomplishing the task that God has put before us, I want you as fellow elders of love. Now maybe your mind is going back to the exact same scenario that mine is. Do you remember when the Apostle Peter is fishing? And what has happened, you recall, Peter has sinned against the Lord by rejecting him three times. Exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. Peter, you're in the 93 times. Lord, no, there's no way I'm going to do that. And Jesus says, I pray for you that your faith fail not. And when you have been restored, then go back to your brothers. In other words, you're going to fail. And Peter does, in fact, fail three times. And now he is fishing. And, and I, I tend to take this as, as Peter going back to something he knows what to do, right? He knows how to fish. He knows he's done this before. So he's out fishing. And Jesus comes on the shore. He calls out to them, tells them to cast their net. They, they catch a bounty of fish that is just so much that even John remembers the exact number of fish. Just like there are some of you men who know the exact size of the fish, the biggest fish you ever caught, right? You don't forget that sort of thing if you're a fisherman. He remembers the exact number. Well, they know this is Jesus. And so Peter jumps out of the boat, swims to the shore. He has breakfast with Jesus. And Jesus asks him those three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, you know I do, Lord. You know I do, Lord. You know I do, Lord. And what does Jesus say to him? Feed my sheep. Peter, if you love me, then here's what you have to do. Take care of my congregation. Of course, Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead. He knows that it's time to go to the Father is in just a little while. He's not going to be able to be there amongst the, amongst the saints. And so he's leaving one who is still going to be there, and he says, feed them. I'm going to make the call again in just a little bit, but let me say, among the young people of this congregation, there is no greater calling in this life than to feed the sheep of God. Now there are various capacities to do that, but one of those is to be a leader among God's people. And here Peter, who's been called to this monumental task, this joy, is saying to others who've been called to this joy, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. And I think there is humility that's displayed throughout the whole thing. And even as he, as he does this, I think what he's doing is he's extending to these men, some of whom are sitting here, he's extending to you the recognition that the same call that Jesus, or that Peter was given to shepherd the flock. So elders today among the congregation have also been given the same call because they are fellow elders with Peter. Peter then shows us great humility because he says he's a co-shepherd. Notice also down in verse number three of chapter five, it says that the elder, that the shepherd, must not be domineering over those in your charge. And we'll talk about that side of things in just a moment, but you'll notice the opposite side of it, but being examples to the flock. If we are to be good shepherds of God's people, then we must be humble, and part of that means leading by example. Here's a passage in Matthew chapter 20, 
You might be able to read it up on the screen, but I'll read it for you in case you can't. When the ten disciples heard this, by the way, this is that two of the brothers had come to Jesus and said, Jesus, will you give me, give us a seat at your right and left hand? And how do you think the other ten disciples felt about that? So when they heard about it, it says they became indignant with the two brothers. They're upset. How could you do this? Verse 25, Jesus called them over and said that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high position act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Did you notice that phrase there? He says in verse 25, the rulers of the Gentiles, how do they lead? They rule over. It's almost like rule over with an iron fist. All the people have to listen to exactly what they say. And you see the Gentiles, that is those who are outside of Christ, they measure their leadership by this statistic. How many people are under me? How many people can I tell to do something? The more that number is, the greater I am. But you know, Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's trying to turn, up, turn upside down their whole paradigm. Is this not the number of people that you can tell what to do? that determines your greatness. Your greatness is determined by how many people you serve, how many people you find yourself under in serving. And so here Peter, as he's giving, giving advice to the elders, he says you must be humble, and you must not lead by lording over instead. You are to be an example to the flock. And just think about that. The example to the flock means that he's among the flock, he's with the flock, he's known by the flock. The person who thinks of himself as greater than everyone else can never serve as, as an example, can he? Because nobody could follow in my footsteps is what he's thinking. I'm greater than them, and so I can't leave an example for them. They can't walk the way that I walk. But you see, the shepherd of God's people, the good shepherd, is going to come along and say, I am going to be the first in service. And I'm going to do the things that I want the people who are following me to follow. You can put it this way. Do you remember the Apostle Paul? He used, to, he used this phrase, I think, three times. He says, follow me. Which kind of sounds proud, prideful at first, right? Hey, lead, follow my example. But do you know he follows it with another phrase? Follow me. As I follow Christ. You know, the good shepherd should be able to say that. He never is one who comes along to a congregation and says, Hey, do as I say, but not as I do. He's the person who comes along and says, Do as I do. As I lead the congregation of God's people. And that requires that a form of humility. So God's shepherds are humble. I think the second thing, God's shepherds are wise. You'll notice in the passage that we have, it says in verse number two, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. The language there is the, the, the idea of an overseer. 
someone who oversees the management of something. And I think there's two elements that, that flow out of this command to exercise oversight. First, it refers to the fact that a wise shepherd is one who knows how to manage the flock of God. He knows how to manage the church. And, and let's just pause and consider for a moment how, how much of a high calling that is. As you think of the shepherd that you're calling, you need somebody who's wise, who can handle the word of God and determine the right way to, to walk in, in, right, in, in right fellowship with God. Lots of questions come to pastors. Hey, pastor, here's a situation in my family. How do I deal with it? Pastor, here's the situation. Is this grounds for divorce? Hey, Pastor, I'm at work and somebody has asked me to use their new name or their new pronoun. How do I navigate that difficulty? Just think recently about our church and the churches around as they had to navigate the question of the pandemic. And I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but lots and lots of questions had to be answered and wisdom had to be done in order for the church to stay unified in the midst of such a dividing time. And who knows what life's going to look like in the future from here. So you need a wise man. What does the preaching of the word, what it should be the next series that's preached through, lots of questions are asked of the leader of God's people, and so you need one who is wise. But I think this idea of exercising oversight has a second implication, and that is that you need a man who knows the sheep, who knows the, the people. I am reminded of a story I heard once, and, and it may be totally fabricated, but uh, there were a hundred sheep that had gotten lost. Uh, a number of these sheep had gone into a section and they were discovered, they were found. But two people came forward to claim them as their sheep. And the police officer, who's trying to decide whose sheep these are, goes over and talks to the two men. And he talks to the one, he talks to the other, and he really only spends about a minute with each of them. And he comes back to, his, to, to the other people congregated there trying to determine who the real shepherd is. And he says, I know who the shepherd is. And he said, how could you have in one minute determined who the shepherd was? He said, it was fairly easy. It was the man who smelled like a sheep. <laughs> and we need a shepherd among the people of God who smells like a sheep. He knows the congregation of his people. Now, let me speak back to uh, Pastor Murawski. I can say this about Pastor Murawski. He, he knows you very well. He gave himself to that task. I remember uh, one, one of the text messages that I had with him after he had left. Uh, and he had a full load at, at, the college, at, at the university that he teaches at. In fact, not only did he have a full load, he had more than a full load. Some of you may know that when he went there, another one of the professors got sick. And so a lot of New Testament courses, obviously he's an Old Testament guy, he had to teach a lot of these New Testament courses. And so I made comment to him once, I said, oh man, you've got, you've got a lot on your plate, uh, you know, uh, how are you making? He's like, well, I'm, I'm not as busy as I was when I was pastoring. And you know, that suggests to me 
I don't think Pastor uh, Brian was one who sat in his office all day, did he? Yeah. You knew Pastor Brian was a man who knew you. He smelled like the sheep. He knew your situations. And the, this is the sort of man that you want to call. Someone who knows. Because if you're going to oversee the congregation, then you have to know the sheep. Good shepherds are wise. Let me mention one more thing that I think good shepherds in, in this wisdom must have. They must know that the chief need of their sheep is the gospel. Notice at the beginning of this passage, it says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, and then you'll notice this next line, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. There, that line, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, I think better should be translated a witness to the sufferings of Christ. He's saying that, a, that an elder, a shepherd of God's people, leads the people back to the sufferings of Christ which is the redemptive element of the gospel. This is what a good shepherd does. He knows the food that God's people need, and the food that we all need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So good shepherds are wise. Good shepherds are also motivated. What do we mean by good shepherds are motivated? Well, they're motivated, I think, by a couple of things. First, they're motivated by godly compulsion. If you notice down here in verse number seven, I'm sorry, verse number two, shepherd the flock of God this among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly. So here's a contrast that he's making for these shepherds. He's saying, hey, don't take the job because you need a job. Don't take the job because you feel like it's the right thing to do necessarily. Do the thing because there's an internal compulsion. There's a willingness in your soul and heart. I've always, and, and you'll notice that the phrase says, as God would have you. So God wants willing pastors. Now, is there a compulsion for pastoral ministry? I think that there is, but it's not an external compulsion, it's an internal compulsion. Do you remember the Apostle Paul as he's talking about his own ministry? He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel of God. Why does he say woe to me? Let me be cursed if I don't preach the gospel of God. Because he knew the internal call that God had given to him. And so he pursued it. Paul's statement in 1 Timothy 3.1, he says, Those who desire the off, off, office of a bishop or an elder, they desire a good task. The implication there is that the elder would be one who desires the task. And I think it simply says this, that if God is calling a man to gospel ministry, then he puts a desire within that man's heart for gospel ministry. And may I then turn back to those who are here within this congregation, I ask you to consider whether God might have you be a shepherd. Now, I think that there's, there's a lot of ideas out there of good things that you could go into. You could be a doctor. You could be the CEO of, co of a company. You could be all, a, a great writer, a screenwriter, an actor, whatever the case may be. You could be all these things. But there's no greater calling than to be the shepherd of God's people, if God is calling you to that. 
And may I again say, don't take it as, I'm gifted in this area, I'm gifted in this area, so I'm not called to ministry. Here's, here's the thing, I think you will find that the, that the men most successful in ministry, the men that are able to handle the Word of God well, are men that God has prepared and could be doing something else successfully as well. But God has called them to this task. And so I encourage the young people in this congregation, consider whether the Lord is calling you into pastoral ministry. Well, he's motivated by a godly concern. He is not motivated by worldly concerns. Notice again in verse number two, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And then notice the next thing, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. The language there of shameful gain, it can also be translated, and you might see this in the translation you have there, greedily. Not for financial gain. Your motivation in serving the church isn't to get a paycheck. It's because you really desire to accomplish the task. Now, there have been some who have suggested that the church then should make it so that a pastoral candidate isn't coming for the pay. And I've heard it said uh, that, you know, the best thing to do is to keep your pastor just, you know, needy, and that would be a godly thing to do. Well, Scripture doesn't share that perspective. Scripture says that the laborer is worthy of his wages. This is the Lord Jesus Christ who says this, and he speaks in reference to um, financial gain. He says in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul does, the scripture says, don't muzzle, muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, which sounds like an odd passage, but what he's saying is, if God was saying, don't muzzle an ox while it's doing its work so that it might benefit from the work it does, Paul then turns and he says, the, the pastor deserves his wages. And the whole point here is that the pastor should never come to a position because of money primarily. But the church should at the same time also make sure that their pastor isn't in, in poverty. There is a role for the church to say we would like to take care of our pastor and make sure that he can take congregants out to lunch that he could pay for the needs that his family would have. So I encourage this church to consider that as you consider your next, your next pastor. Notice he's motivated not by worldly concerns, but finally motivated by heavenly rewards. This comes in verse number four. It says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory and what he's saying to the, to, the, to the shepherds then is that when the Lord returns, there is going to be a reward for those who have shepherded well, who've led my people well. There's going to be a crown which is glory given to those who have done this. And this, I think, is rather appropriate. Because as an elder who's trying to lead sheep to think of eternal rewards, Christ lays out an eternal reward. He says this, when the chief shepherd appears. And this is a reminder to all who are elders 
This isn't your congregation, is it? This isn't yours, it is the Lord's. He is the chief shepherd. We are his under shepherds. And so we must follow what he calls. So shepherds, or so, so shepherds have a godly call. And these are passages I work through that I shouldn't click through. Motivated by heavenly rewards. There you are. Well, we ask the question, then what is the responsibility of God's people? We've been talking about the responsibility of elders and, and who you might call towards that chief elder position here. But notice he makes a transition down in verse number five. He says, likewise, in a similar way, you who are younger, and I think here he's just using an analogy. He just called them elders, and he's saying those who are not elders, the younger of the congregation. Be subject to the elders. And so if the good shepherd gives an example to follow, good sheep follow the example of the shepherd. Hebrews gives us a passage that I think helps us to think through what our responsibility is in regard to this. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch, they are overseers, they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I've heard my pastor, Pastor Doran there at Inner City Baptist Church, say that this is a passage that he shudders when he reads because of the responsibility laid on the pastors because he recognizes that one day he will have to give an account for all of the sheep. But this is something for us to be reminded of as well. That I do want my pastor to be able to good, give a good commendation of the way in which I followed him. Do you want your next shepherd to enjoy his ministry? Sure. I'll tell you, if he enjoys his ministry, then I think you'll enjoy being ministered to much more. And how will you encourage a pastor? Here's how. By getting behind his leadership. By cheering him on. By being an encouragement to you. And I know that uh, Pastor Brian would say that that is exactly the heart of this congregation. And I can testify to the short time in which I've been able to fill this pulpit. Your, your response to the preaching of the word has just been such a joy to me. Week by week, I look forward to standing in this pulpit. Because I see and I hear afterwards the way in which individuals in this congregation are saying things like, thank you for that, I needed that, here's how that's working in my life. Tell you, if you want to encourage your pastor, let him know, not, not, not just that it was a good sermon, but say, here's how, the, how God is using the word that you followed him to preach in my life this week. And man, that's a joy to receive those, those emails or those conversations. So, good sheep then must follow their shepherd. But I think there's another thing that it says about us as sheep. Good sheep 
are also humble. You remember earlier we said the good shepherd is humble, but good sheep are humble. Notice down in verse 5. So you who are elders, be subject to the, or you who are younger, be subject to the elders. That takes some humility. But then notice he goes on, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God's sheep must be humble. You know, Peter uses a word here that would be in reference to a slave taking a towel and wrapping it around his waist. This is the word that we see here, clothe yourself with humility. That's the word he's using. And do you know what that individual would do with that towel? He would then wipe the feet of those who needed their feet wiped. I'm convinced if you have your Bibles, turn to John 13, because I am absolutely convinced that Peter is referring to this passage. It's an unforgettable event in Peter's life. John chapter 13. Jesus is at the Last Supper, and he is about to tell them that one's going to betray them. He says this in verse 1 of John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world and to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. So you'll notice that what Jesus does is sourced out of his love for others. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Now, could I just pause there and say this? Jesus knows that Simon is going to betray him. Jesus didn't skip washing Simon's feet. Verse number three. Jesus, don't miss this verse. It means the whole world. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from supper, supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet and wiped them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I'm doing now, you, don't, you will not understand, but afterward you will understand. And write about it in a book. Peter said to him, no, no, you're not going to wash my feet, Jesus said, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me, Peter says. Well, Lord, not my feet also, but my whole body, my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who's bathing is not need to wash except for his feet. What I want to point out comes back to verse number three. When Jesus is taking off his outer garment, as he begins to wrap the towel around his waist, what's going through his mind? He's knowing that all things belong to him in the heavens and the earth. Things in heaven, things above the earth, things on the earth, things under the earth, every knee will bow to him and he knows it. He also knows the second thing. He knows where he came from. 
He remembers the glory that he had with the Father. He knows what his real status and position is, which has been shielded, veiled by means of his human flesh, but he knows exactly who he is. And even with the recognition that of his incredible position, what does he do? He becomes the lowest in that room, and he serves everyone else. And I'm reminded then that when Jesus does this for his servants, or for, for his servants, really, when Jesus does this, what he does is the God of all eternity, the one who made the heavens and the earth, who, the one who even at that moment was keeping all things held together, humbled himself all the way down here underneath his servants. And now, here in this passage, Peter, remembering that, says to the congregation of God's people, to you, clothe yourselves, put on the towel, and serve one another with humility. And the question I have for you is, if Jesus could go from here all the way down to here to serve us, could we go from here to here? Right? Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another. And then he gives us a reason, as though we needed a reason, but he gives it to us. Why should you serve one another in this way? Be the servant to all. It's because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you remember earlier Peter said, do you want to have the good life? Here's how to have it. Keep, keep your tongue away from evil. Do good. For then the eyes of the Lord are on you, and his ears open to your prayer. But the face of the Lord is against the one who does evil. And what he's suggesting here is, to the degree that we are humble, is the degree to which God's eye is upon us and his ear is open to our prayers. And to the degree that we are prideful, that in our self-sufficiency we think we're all right, is the degree to which we have put ourselves in opposition to God. You don't want to be on the other side of God. He opposes the proud, but notice something incredible. He lavishes grace on the humble. And it's, it's, it's this odd paradigm that we live in. The moment we think we're worthy, we're unworthy. And the moment we recognize we're unworthy, God says, you're worthy. And he grants to us blessing. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And then notice verse 6 then. This is the next passage. Humble yourselves therefore. In light of what scripture says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Because at the proper time, he may exalt you. And I'm, I'm going to move quickly through this. Because one of the questions sometimes people ask, this seems a little backwards, right? Humble yourselves, because one day God's going to exalt you. And it seems like, well, <laughs> if I'm humbling myself to be exalted, then I'm really humbling myself. But let me mention a few things that I think make sense for this. First, notice it says, really, if, if I were uh, to translate it, then I would translate it this way. Be humble under the mighty hand of God. 
Because uh, this verb can be taken as humble yourselves, or it could be be humbled. And I think what he's really getting at here is that we are to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. That is, when you see the mighty hand of God, the power, the fact that every good thing you've ever done is is because of him, then as you see the mighty hand of God, what does that make you think of yourself? As you look into that mirror, what do you see yourself as? All of a sudden, you shrink in importance. You shrink in power because of the mighty hand of God. Be humbled as you stand under the mighty hand of God. Third, notice that it's not just humble yourselves and God's going to raise you up immediately. It's humble yourselves and at the end of time, at the right time, God will exalt us. And finally, we're following the footsteps of Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross, did he know that the reward of his suffering would be the, the, the title, Lord of all? Did he know that because of this, every knee would bow to him and every tongue confess to him? Yes. And do you know what Romans chapter 12 tells, or Hebrews chapter 12 tells us, that that served as a motivation for him to go to the cross because he saw the glory that lasted behind him. And scripture then tells us, that it is not illegitimate for us to seek after the reward that God has reserved for those who love him. So humble yourselves. And, 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 and I think here's Peter's point. No matter how much you humble yourself, no matter how low you go, no matter how, how much it may seem in the, in the present to, to be hot, one day the Lord will exalt you. He will make it all worth it. So, how do we humble ourselves? That's the final question we're going to consider here. And it's told to us in verse number seven. By casting all your anxieties on him. That's in fact how the net translation translates it. It's a participle, but it, but it, which means that it's, that as you look at it, you have to determine what its meaning is. I think it's quite evident here that it's telling us how to be humble. How will you humble yourselves before before the mighty hand of God? It is by casting our anxieties on Him. Now, if you pause for just a moment and ask this question of yourself, I think you'll see why. You see, the person who never casts their problems on God is incredibly prideful. You can see it, can't you? Because if you never cast your care on God, it means that you think that you are sufficient in and of yourself. You believe that you can handle something and that you don't need God. I would say, really, there are two things that, that, make, that, that I think about when I think of this passage. Do you want to know if you are prideful? Here's one test. Are you anxious? Is anxiety your middle name? Then what has happened? Then you have taken all the cares, all the challenges of life and said, I have to deal with them. And that's actually a prideful position to be in. 
The one who casts his anxieties on God recognizes that he needs God's help and that in faith God will help. Because this is the God who loves us. So we cast our anxieties on him. Let me ask a second question. I, this, one, this one hits me hard. Okay? When you get news of a difficulty, of a challenge, maybe bad news or whatever the situation is, something that now you're going to have to deal with. How quickly does your mind turn to God? I'll be honest. There have been times where I've heard of a problem, heard of some situation, and I've already got a 12-step plan for how I'm going to deal with this thing. And then all of a sudden I'm like, maybe I should pray about this too. And you know what that revealed to me about my own heart? I still feel rather self-sufficient. I'm going to take care of this problem. How quickly does your heart turn to casting your anxieties on God? Now Peter gives us, earlier I mentioned, he gave us a reason to humble ourselves, which we didn't need, right? Jesus had given us this example, we should just do it. But then he says, and I'm going to reward you. And now he says, how are you going to be humble? You're going to be humble by casting your care on me. But then he gives us a reason to cast our care on him. And this passage just gets me every time. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. <clears throat> Do you believe that God cares for you? Let me show you, let me try and demonstrate how much God cares for you. You see what the passage says? Does it say, cast your major anxieties on him because he cares for you? It didn't say that, did it? It says, cast all your anxieties on him. Do you know how my heart is naturally anxious about all sorts of things? All sorts of things. All sorts of things that in the scope of eternity, in the scope maybe even of the rest of the day, maybe aren't all that significant, but they're significant to me. And God says to me, Tim, cast that on me. Let me give you an illustration that I think really pictures this well. Imagine that I want to buy my children new toys. And so I take them to the dollar store. I wouldn't do that, but let's just imagine I did. I take them to the dollar store, and they buy these new toys. If you've ever bought a toy from the dollar store, you know that the shelf life of a dollar store toy, dollar store toy is at approximately 12 minutes. And then it now is in two or three parts. Okay? And so my daughter comes to me, and she's got this little dollar store, store toy in her hand. Do I care about that toy? The answer is both yes and no. On the one hand, I care nothing about that toy at all. I didn't want it in the first place. I knew that it belonged in the trash when we paid the dollar for it. Right? So I don't care about the toy. But you know I do care about the toy. Do you know why? Because I care about my daughter. And my daughter cares about that toy. And all of a sudden, I care about the toy. 
Do you know this is God? There are lots of things in your life that seem like, I'm not going to take that one to God. I mean, that's, that's too small. That, that's, but you know what he says? Cast all of them on me. Everything. Bring it to me. Not because he cares for that. I mean, he does, but it's because he cares for you. Could I make an application then of this? We've just talked about a pastor, haven't we? And here I am among a congregation who's been waiting patiently for many months for God to make evident the man who should be the, the lead shepherd of this congregation. And God has not yet provided that man. And I'm praying that God would. That's an anxiety, isn't it? That's something that can cause stress, cause consternation in the human heart. Cast that on him. Pray. First, do, do this today. Pray through 1 Peter chapter 5. Sit down with the Bible and say, Lord, would you help us to find a shepherd? One who will preach the gospel to us. One who will exercise oversight. One who will smell like the sheep. One who would not do it because of compulsion, but willingly. One who would do it not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not one who would domineer over us but one who would be an example to us. Oh, Father, here is my anxiety. Here is my care. I cast it upon you. And may the Lord answer that prayer. Father, I thank you that you care for us. You care deeply for us. You've shown you care for us to a degree that is beyond comprehension because you sent your son for us. And as Paul said, if you sent your son for us, will you not with him give us all things freely? I call upon you as a good father, as the chief shepherd, that you would lead a shepherd to this congregation, someone who would love this flock, and lead them in the way of the last. Father, we thank you that you care for our cares, and that you have invited us to cast our cares on you. In Jesus' name.